You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to the show today. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? Oh, I've got another cold. It keeps coming around, but other than that, I'm okay. Well, it's good to see you for sure. Yeah, well, I'm going to need you and our guest, Dr. No, to, to pick up on the, the talking today because I think I'm going to be muted out several times. It's no problem. We'll, no. we'll do our best. Yeah, good, because it's really not a sexy voice you're hearing. It's really kind of aggravating. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, our show today is taped, so there is no opportunity for you to call in, unfortunately. But if you would like further information on this show, you can certainly email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. You can follow us on our social media sites at the Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And always check out our podcast. All of our shows are flipped over into a podcast format. You can find them on all the for all the all the platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, and so forth. On my website, Alex does a great job of fixing up any live mistakes and the podcasts really come through nice and clear. So always a great way to get lots of information. Our guests are super. We have tons of information for you on every show. So please do take advantage of those. So Alex, what Uh should we talk about today? Our show is taped. We can't talk about anything that's like current. (laughs) I know. Well, you know, what's wonderful. We have received so much great feedback over the several weeks that we've been doing this show. Mm -hmm. And of course, now we're well into uh, over a year now. So over a year. It's, it's, it's hard very, to believe. Very, it's um, hard to believe. Yeah, we have, have had some great feedback and we so appreciate it. You know, constructive feedback is awesome with the positive flair, but we're really getting a lot of people that are coming on board. It takes a while for people to pick up on these things, Alex. There are how many podcasts out there, but we're really getting some great feedback and we really appreciate the... Um, you know, requests for shows and content. That's all. You know, we always want to make you guys happy. So thank you and, and continue to do that. Yeah. And it's 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 wonderful not only to hear from listeners, but also guests who have been on the show yes. providing their their um, the support of the program. So yes, it really is great. And, you know, we have very dynamic guests. So it, we do appreciate that. Thank you very much. So today on our food portion, before we get into our the meat and potatoes of our show, I want to talk to you about buckwheat and not buckwheat from Little Rascals, and I hopefully I'm not dating myself on that, but I want to talk to you about buckwheat, the food. A buckwheat isn't actually a wheat, it's a misnomer, or even a cereal grain. It's in fact a fruit seed, and it's related to rhubarb. It is rich in protein and complex carbohydrates, and it's suitable for those who are gluten-sensitive and even celiac. You just have to make sure that it's not produced in a factory where other other products that may have gluten in it are, are made but or are produced, actually. But yes, buckwheat's um, a very suitable food for gluten sensitivities and celiac. It's really high in fiber, so it's great for cholesterol management. And of course, you know what that high fiber does for regularity, but especially for gut health. It contains a phytonutrient called rutin. And rutin is a very powerful antioxidant, which contributes to buckwheat's potential as an anti-inflammatory food. So when we want to prevent disease, we want to fight disease, we're always looking for those really nutrient-dense foods that, of course, are very flavorful, which buckwheat is, um, and use it. Try it. It's not one of the more common things used. It's kind of chewy. It has a sort of a nutty taste is what I would describe it, but I love it, and I use it in soups, so I just toss it in the soup. After I rinse it, I throw it in, and it cooks really nicely. It takes up a lot of water, so you got to watch it in your soups that it doesn't, be, uh, it doesn't absorb too much liquid. It's amazing in salads, and you can use it in place of rice, so give it a try. That's something that is not... Not really on the radar of a lot of people, and I just wanted to point that out to you. Okay, Alex? Thank you. Something new for your pantry? 
Sure. <laughs> so today's guest is Dr. Lee No. He's a naturopathic doctor and is based out of Canada. He is a recipient of several awards and he's known by his peers to be a strategic and forward thinking entrepreneur and researcher. He has held positions as medical advisor, scientific evaluator, and director of research and development for major organizations. Besides managing scientific affairs for his own company, he also currently serves as a consultant to the natural health products and dietary supplements industries and serves on the editorial advisory board for Canada's most read natural health magazine. His fabulous book is called Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, the Key to Understanding Disease, Chronic Illness, Aging and Life Itself. And we are going to talk with Dr. No about mitochondria. Our learning points today will be what are mitochondria, common health conditions linked to mitochondrial dysfunction, and how we optimize our mitochondrial function. So all these questions and many, many more will be answered after our break.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As I mentioned earlier, today's show is being taped, so unfortunately you can't call in. But again, email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you'd like further information on the show. Um, and you can pick it up on a podcast shortly. So, Dr. Lino, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Kathy. It's, it's always great to have somebody well-versed in the scientific area of things that are becoming so trendy in health right now and mitochondria. You know, we didn't hear about this 10 years ago. It was sort of off the radar. So before we actually get into to the topic at hand here, how did you get involved in this and what is your background and what brought you to, to writing this book? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's an excellent way to, to start. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a consultant to the natural health products industry. And, um, you know, being a naturopathic doctor going through school, we obviously learn about the mitochondria and its importance to cellular energy. And this is something that, you know, we all learn about even back in high school. But uh, we don't, even in naturopathic college, we didn't really learn the importance of mitochondria to, to health and disease. And uh, it wasn't until I was consulting with one particular brand in Canada who had a, a product of CoQ10 that was particularly well absorbed. And what this um, meant was that there was a lot of hospitals and other medical clinics that uh, were using the, the product for their patients. And this was at a time about when um, there was a lot of interest around CoQ10 for female infertility age-related infertility, and there was a clinic uh, based out of Ottawa that wanted me to come in and do a presentation to their doctors and nurses to help them understand why they should be recommending CoQ10 to a subgroup of female patients. And it was at that time, um, in, in the process of putting together the presentation and doing the research, where I really became interested in, in the mitochondria. And um, one of the things that the research was showing with respect to infertility was that, uh, especially with age-related infertility, it was related to dysfunctional mitochondria in the eggs of, of female patients. But as I dug deeper, what I soon realized was that dysfunctional mitochondria was linked to essentially all age-related degenerative diseases and even more um, was linked to the aging process itself. So uh, it it was one of those things where the deeper I dug, the more fascinating it became. And uh, what I came to realize was that there was no single reference that kind of summarized a lot of the stuff that I was coming across. There was obviously good research that had had been done and there are other resources that focused on a very specific area. Um, as an example, um, chronic fatigue, uh, but nothing that really summarized the, the whole scope of anything related to the mitochondria, including, you know, the evolution of mitochondria throughout the ages, uh, its impact to health and what happens when um, things start to fall apart. So that's my, that was my goal in writing the book is to try to be that one uh, resource, uh, a starting point for people wanting to get interested uh, or interested in mitochondria but don't know where to start. This is ideally where uh, I would want the book to kind of lay is that, that starting point that kind of influences people to kind of do more research on their own. No, it's very information-packed for sure. Now, okay, what are mitochondria? Let's start at the very the very basics. Yeah, so... Um, you know, we, we all learned about the mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. So um, the mitochondria are what we call, um, it, it's a type of organelle. So an organelle to a cell, you can look at it as an organ to our body. Uh, so they're distinct structures that carry out specialized function. And um, just like the liver will carry out a specialized function uh, for the body, well, the, um, the organelle called the mitochondria, its specialized function is to produce energy. And in fact, over 90% of the energy that's found within the body is produced through the mitochondria. And um, now that is the primary role of the mitochondria, but we know as science has evolved in this area that we have, uh, the, the mitochondria is also responsible for a number of other things. They, they produce uh, cellular uh, messaging molecules. They are responsible for orchestrating uh, a, a program cell death, which is called apoptosis or apoptosis. Uh, so there are other roles that the mitochondria play, but by far its most important role is the produ- production of cellular energy. 
Okay, so let's let's visualize this for everybody. So you have your cell. Let's picture a circle. Inside the cell is the mitochondria. Correct. Now, are there a number of mitochondria in each cell, or does that vary with different parts of the body? It does. So the given that its primary role is the generation of energy, um, the number of mitochondria per cell is dictated by the energetic demands of that particular cell. So when we look at uh, cells like the red blood cell or even skin cells that don't really have a huge energetic demand, we might see uh, only a handful of mitochondria or, or um, you know, in some cases, we don't even see red blood cells with any mitochondria. But then if you look at other tissues in the body that are much more metabolically demanding, such as the heart or the brain, which are the two most energy intensive organs in the body, we see thousands. Uh, you know, we can see over 2000 mitochondria per cell. And that speaks to the, you know, the intense energy demands uh, created in these particular cells. And what's, what's also really important to understand is that everything that happens within the cell and within our body requires energy. And, and I don't mean that lightly, or I'm not speaking figuratively. I really mean literally everything that requires, uh, that happens requires energy to the obvious things like muscle contraction to things that we don't even think about, like the maintenance of the cytoskeleton or the transport of ions across membranes. So um, it's extremely important for these mitochondria uh, to not only be efficient in producing uh, energy, but that we actually have enough of these mitochondria to meet the demands of the different tissues. Okay, when I was just, you know, from, from what I was taught and just, you know, very basic level mitochondria stuff, Two things that seem to come up all the time, and I just want you to clarify whether or not this is true. Uh, first of all, do we get all our mitochondria from just our mother? That's correct. Yeah, so the mitochondria um, are inherited through what we call maternal inheritance. So essentially, you and I both have our mother's mitochondria, and our mother had their mother's uh mitochondria, so our maternal grandmother's uh, mitochondria, and so on. So it basically, it really only follows um, the maternal uh, line, so to speak. Now, I, I, I truly don't know the answer to this question. Does the health of the mother impact the health of the mitochondria that are passed through to her child? Absolutely. And, um, you know, this is, this is an important point to to note is that first of all the mitochondria um, i should also mention has its own set of dna uh so this is separate from the dna that's found in the nucleus uh and uh, you know there's different uh ways to talk about why the mitochondria has uh, has its own set of dna but regardless um, as, as you mentioned this mitochondria with its dna is passed through the maternal line and it's own set of DNA is incredibly important in determining how efficient the, the mitochondria will function. So if your mother had dysfunctional mitochondria to any sort of degree, you're going to inherit those defective um, genes from the mitochondria. And if that compromises energy production, you're going to also experience the, the potential downsides of that that your mother might have, uh, say, in, in her later later years. So it, it's important to understand, you know, th there there are different patterns of inheritance. We have, you know, the, the standard type of uh, uh, Mendelian uh, inheritance patterns that we learned about in high school, you know, where we're looking at the genes and the, the DNA in the nucleus that's inherited both from the mother and the father. But uh, and, and that can have certain impacts in terms of the health uh, risks of it, uh, the offspring. But in other situations, we're really looking at the DNA and the inheritance pattern from the mitochondria, solely from the mother. Okay, so now we've got the microbiome with its own DNA, mitochondria with its own DNA, and then our gene DNA. So are we broadening the scope when we're looking at medicine? Are we broadening the scope that we really have to look at when we're trying to discuss and discover and deal with disease? Uh, so this is a general rule in, in biology that it seems like the deeper you dig, uh, the picture becomes increasingly complex. Uh, it's rare that we dig deeper and find an, um, the, the picture getting uh, simpler to explain. So as you, as you mentioned, you know, we're, we're realizing the, the scope of importance with uh, our microbiome and our our microbiome has 
an incredibly diverse number of genes and DNA that uh, our bodies can utilize to uh, impact our health in a positive way or negative way. Um, but that also is being shown true to be uh, um, uh, for the mitochondria as well. And as I mentioned, with its own set of DNA, it's, it's really time to broaden our understanding of genetics, quote unquote genetics, uh, to encompass more than just the genes within uh, the nucleus. It's really interesting to talk about this at a time when gene testing is becoming, you know, the, the, the thing to do because it sounds like we're limited in the genes that we're testing and we're not diving deep enough into it. And I guess that might be part of the impetus of your book. Why have, yes. why have mitochondria been so overlooked in medicine? Well, it was, I think, more the fact that we just didn't understand its importance and its role in cellular biology. So, as I mentioned, we for a very long time knew that it was the generator of energy, but it pretty much stopped there. Um, but now we're starting to see that it, as I mentioned, does a lot more. And the fact that everything that happens in our body requires energy it's it, dysfunctional mitochondria are being linked to so many different things. So not only was it our understanding of the need, uh, the importance of the need of uh, cellular energy, but also the fact that as an example, it's the, the master regulator or orchestrator of cellular suicide. Uh, so the cells that are no longer functional or operating in the uh, greater good of the, the community or the host are, are, to commit suicide and it's actually the mitochondria that does that when mitochondria don't function in that role properly that's when the defective cells can um, um, persist and expand and grow and divide and that is often the, the start of, of things like cancer so it, it's more in terms of the where the medical research was previously as opposed to where it is today that has really shed light on the importance of mitochondria in all areas of health the link between, you know, we'll just touch on this uh, briefly because you, you, you brought it up. The link between apoptosis and mitochondrial function is, is an important piece. It's something that um, I just got educated on myself uh, recently. It, apoptosis is, you know, that, that cell death. And so for cancer, uh, you know, attenuating to the health of the mitochondria is a very, very important piece for this apoptosis function. And as I said, that the, that link isn't made as often maybe as it should be to the general population. You know, these words are thrown at us and, you know, digging a little deeper into, say, that the function of the mitochondria helps us to make these connections. And it's very important. Absolutely. And you know what? It, this is a clear example of how slow things progress in the medical, uh, uh, medical field. Um, you know, the, the link between... Uh, mitochondria and cancer was made back in the 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. by a gentleman named Carl Warburg who um, uh, suggested that cancer is a, a metabolic disease and you know that's that's nearly a hundred years ago and now we're starting to realize that you know a, a, a very large chunk of cancers out there are now being considered metabolic uh, a metabolic disorder as opposed to you know say even just 20, 30 years ago, where we thought that cancer was predominantly a genetic disorder. Um, So, you know, things move slowly, but it's because, you know, know, technology may not have existed. A full picture or understanding of a full picture didn't exist at the time. So as these gaps get filled, uh, these gaps in knowledge gets filled, we're starting to realize uh, a different picture emerge. And like I said, we're starting to realize that a very large number of cancers out there are considered metabolic cancers. Well, plus the fact when you invest so much time on a theory and you start developing protocols based on a theory to to interject with a totally different theory, it does take some time to try and, and, you know, move away from what you what you think you're doing into a whole new concept. Now, I think, you know, we we talk about all these things and, and I think we assume that, you know, even the listeners understand what you mean by metabolic function. So, you know, maybe you could sort of, of bring that idea, uh, give us a clearer picture of what you mean by a metabolic function. Right. So, so anytime we talk about metabolism, we're talking about uh, the burning of fuel to produce energy. And um, in the sense that, um, and so basically when you look at metabolism, it, the mitochondria occupy a central role in any discussion ar- around metabolism, but more specifically things like cancer, what the, um, what cells, cancerous cells do is it actually shifts metabolism 
to something we call um, uh, aerobic um, like uh, anaerobic glycolysis. So basically, it's uh, typically what we do with the mitochondria is we use oxygen that we breathe and we take the fuel and we burn that in the presence of oxygen to create energy. And that's how a normal cell w- would o- uh, operate. But in in situations of uh, cancer where where the cancer cells have more or less hijacked the uh, metab- metabolic processes, it even though it has sufficient amounts of oxygen, it will switch gears, so to speak, and uh, make that cell produce energy in an anaerobic fashion. So it uh, it really switches the, the basis of the role of the mitochondria and allows the cancer to, to grow in a way that supplies energy in a totally different way than what a normal cell would. So, so metabolism as a whole is just the functioning of of something. So the metabolism of the mitochondria is how it is functioning, basically. Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and how it's generating energy. And how it's generating energy. I have a lot of questions that I want to get into that are going to require some, some I think, lengthy conversation. So I think we're going to stop for a break right now and get back. Right. When we get back after the break, we're going to talk about, you know, what causes dysfunction of mitochondria, how we can improve that function, and so on. So we'll be right back after this break, everybody. can see the water's raging at my feet. I can feel the breath of those surrounding me. I can hear the sound of nations rising up. We will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. I can walk down this dark and painful road. I can
on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're here talking today with Dr. Lee No about mitochondria. Fascinating topic, and we're going to get right into some juicy material. So we talked about the uh, metabolic function of mitochondria, some of the things in a broad base of what mitochondria do. How do we get mitochondrial dysfunction then, Lee? Yeah, so there are many different ways, unfortunately, uh, where we can see some negative impact to the way that mitochondria function. Um, to start, I'll say that a number of different compounds that we're exposed to on a daily basis have been shown to have damaging effects to the mitochondria. So uh, things like pesticides, uh, a number of different pesticides have been shown to be quite toxic to mitochondrial function. Um, in fact, in some cases in, in a laboratory environment, they'll use pesticides to induce mitochondrial dysfunction in the animal that, that uh, they're, they're looking to study. So uh, this is another reason to, to eat organic if possible. Uh, you avoid all those toxic pesticides that can have uh, negative impacts to mitochondrial function. The other thing to, to keep in mind is that there are a number of different pharmaceuticals uh, that are commonly taken by the population that have also been shown to have negative impacts to the mitochondria. So the two main ones would be statins. Uh, so statins are a large group of drugs that, uh, in fact, they're the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world, and they are prescribed to uh, lower cholesterol. So a lot of people listening in uh, today would probably be on statin medications. And as I mentioned, the research has shown that they have uh, a, a damaging effect to mitochondrial function. The other thing is uh, antibiotics. A, a, a number of different classes of antibiotics have also been shown to have damaging effects to the mitochondria. Um, but I have, if you read my book, I actually have an entire chapter devoted to um, medication-induced mitochondrial dysfunction. So I won't get into it, uh, all the different drugs, but as I mentioned, the, the two big groups that uh, seem to be relevant to most people listening in would probably be the statins and, and antibiotics. So again, antibiotics are needed in certain cases, but I do definitely feel that they are overprescribed and they really should, outside of destroying the microbiome, um, it has the added uh, detrimental effect of having uh, damaging effects to the mitochondria. So really, antibiotics should be used as a last, last resort when nothing else is working. Um, then uh, something that's probably more common to uh, everyone listening, uh, whether they're taking medications or not, um, is an imbalance in supply versus demand. And this is because when you look at the way that the mitochondria generate energy, it, uh, it takes oxygen and it pairs oxygen with electrons that flow through a, a chain of proteins in the, uh, in the membrane of the mitochondria called the electron transport chain. And when these electrons spill out um, prematurely, they, they can create something called free radicals. And free radicals are rogue molecules that can go on and inflict damage to the DNA within the mitochondria. And of course, if you have damage to the DNA, that DNA can't produce the, the proteins that those genes encode for. So uh, where the, the mismatch in supply and demand comes into play is that if you consume a lot of calories, and keep in mind that at the cellular level, those calories are reduced to electrons. So if we're in, uh, consuming a lot of calories, uh, that essentially means we have an abundant amount of electrons entering the mitochondria. And if we're not using up the energy that our bodies produce, we essentially create a backlog or a traffic jam, so to speak, in the electron transport chain where those electrons are not moving through freely. And again, when those electrons spill out, they can create uh, free radicals. And that's one of the reasons why we look at a lot of different studies that show overconsumption of food and excess consumption of calories has been linked to all sorts of different degenerative diseases from diabetes to cardiovascular disease to cognitive diseases like Alzheimer's uh, and, and so on. So um, a, a mismatch in supply and demand, um, too much supply versus demand is, is negative. Um, but also on the, on the flip side of that, that coin, we have, uh, we see a sedentary lifestyle also being linked to all these different degenerative diseases. So um, again, if you're, if you're, even if you're, you know, not consuming 
an excessive amount, if you're not using that energy, the same thing can happen where those electrons spill out of the electron transport chain and create those free radicals that can damage the, the DNA within the mitochondria. So being active and watching how many calories you consume are two of the, the important things that you can do to help ensure that your mitochondria are going to stay healthy. Okay, listeners are going to be familiar with uh, intermittent fasting, fasting, restrictive diets, uh, you know, the 5-2 the ratio. We've talked about all these on the show. So is that what you're suggesting? Or are, you, are you suggesting sort of a daily calorie cap? Or are you in favor of fasting in some format to improve yeah. mitochondrial function? Exactly. So both. Um, so when we look at things like calorie restriction or calorie restricted diets, we're looking at uh, reducing calorie intake, say about 30 to 40 percent of what you would normally eat if you had no restrictions. Um, but the important thing is, is that you're reducing the number of calories. The difference between calorie restriction and malnutrition or starvation is that with calorie restriction, we're essentially reducing the number of calories, but maintaining adequate nutrition intake, um, nutrient intake, whereas malnutrition and starvation, you're, you do have re- a reduction in calories, but you're also not getting the nutrients that your body needs to, to function properly. So that is, is uh, one aspect of, of what we're talking about. The other thing is uh, the intermittent fasting. And one of the things that intermittent fasting does it for a period of time um, dramatically reduces the uh, the calorie intake as well as the electrons entering the electron transport chain. And the newer research is actually showing that this might be a more realistic way for people to optimize the function or preserve the health of their mitochondria without necessarily going undertaking, you know, um, ext- more extreme approaches like calorie-restricted diets or long-term fasting. So intermittent fasting, I think, is something that a lot of people could uh, undertake uh, in a safe and a healthy manner. And that, again, the newer research is showing uh, does provide benefits to mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. And timed eating is another thing. We had Dr. Sachin Pand on here talking about similar things about the timed eating is, you know, or, or you know, going to bed at, or stopping the eating at 8 o'clock and not eating again for 14 hours or so is another area of of nutritional therapy that can be applied, I guess, similarly, as opposed to fasting. Now, is there a particular type of exercise that you recommend for um, mitochondrial function, like high intensity training or just a general activity level? Is one better than the other? So, first of all, and I'm glad you brought this up, because if I can send anyone home today, or if you're listening at home, (laughs) if if there's any one message to get across and you're, you're concerned about the health of your mitochondria, Physical activity is by far the single greatest thing that you can do for the helping your mitochondria. Um, now, in, the, in terms of the type of exercise or physical activity that's most beneficial, it is endurance-type exercises. So that, uh, that would, and it doesn't have to be incredibly intense. Um, you know, even, even speed walking it, it w- would be sufficient, and you can build up your endurance and the level of intens- in- intensity as your body adapts. Um, high intensity interval training has been so just similar uh, to you know intermittent fasting be, being a kind of a, a shortcut uh, to fasting um, high intensity interval training is now being seen as a shortcut to you know long endurance type uh, activities so instead of going out for you know an hour jog you can do these uh, high intensity interval training type exercises where you're going uh, hard for for a short period of time, uh, divided up with uh, rest periods. And uh, again, the newer research is showing that uh, even though you might not be exercising for a very long time, this type of training uh, or physical activity does provide very similar benefits to a much longer duration of, uh, say, uh, jogging or something like that. I also want to point out that I'm not suggesting that uh, resistance type training or resistance type physical activity like lifting weights is not beneficial. Um, there are many benefits to those types of exercises. Um, they can, you know, delay the onset of sarcopenia, which is uh, age-related muscle wasting, things like that. Um, but with respect to the mitochondria itself, it really does seem like you need that endurance uh, type physical activity or at least the high intense uh, intensity interval training um, to optimize the function of mitochondria. Do we have, uh, let's go back a bit. I should have asked this earlier. Are we talking about 
a set number of mitochondria that we are born with that we have to maintain healthy? Or do the mitochondria die? We regenerate. Can we get more mitochondria than what we were born with? How does that all work? Absolutely. Great question. And that that actually dovetails nicely with our our discussion with respect to physical activity. And um, so to answer your question, no, we're we're not born with a uh, a certain number of mitochondria and we have to maintain that. The mitochondria are constantly in flux. So as um, as we place greater energetic demands on our cells, uh, as an example, through physical activity, our bodies adapt by creating more mitochondria and a process that we call mitochondrial biogenesis. So that basically means that, you know, and this is one of the, the, the benefits of physical activity is that when we go out, uh, we place a certain energetic demand on our cells and our cells um, um, respond by creating more mitochondria. So that means the next time we go out to do that same physical activity, we now have a greater capacity to meet that energetic demand. And as we do this on a repeated basis, our, our cells create more and more mitochondria, and they also become more efficient. And what that essentially means that at rest, which is uh, by far the, the greatest portion of our day-to-day lives, even for elite athletes, at rest, that workload that the cell is under is now divided up amongst a greater number of mitochondria. So each single mitochondrion is now under less stress, and less stress means less free radicals being generated. And this is one of the reasons why uh, physically fit uh, people or athletes typically have longer lifespans and also longer health spans. So they're living longer in a healthier state. So it's it's one of those things that... Um, uh, Again, to to speak to exercise, one of those things that is able to increase the number of mitochondria, and one of the very few things that has been proven to increase the number of mitochondria per cell. The other thing uh, to to point out is when mitochondria do get damaged, they um, they go through a process very similar to cellular suicide or apoptosis, where um, the individual defective mitochondria actually get degraded and eliminated. So when a a, a single mitochondrion is no longer functioning properly, that can be broken down and eliminated in the cell and the healthy mitochondria are left to to kind of grow and divide and meet the energetic demands of the cell. It's just when, uh, if there are an abundant number of defective mitochondria per cell and that number uh, reaches a certain threshold, that's when the energetic um, situation within that cell becomes, uh, uh, reaches a dangerous point where that cell now has to make the determination, do we let it live or do we, you know, uh, commit cellular suicide and, and get rid of that whole cell? So it really kind of goes up the chain from defective mitochondria to defective cells to defective tissues and organs. Okay, but the point that I see is that we're not cursed by our mothers. We have something that we can do about it, right? We can, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, of course, we have a starting point that's inherited, mm-hmm. but, of course, it's very important to make sure that we do everything possible uh, within our lifetime to ensure that the mitochondria are able to function properly. So when the mitochondria die and the new ones are developed, potentially are they developed with better gene complex? Yes, uh, so this does happen in, on rare occasions. So often what we see is even if we're born with defective uh, mitochondrial genes from, the, uh, from our mother, it can be, uh, you can see a situation where uh, over time those defective mitochondria with containing the defective genes are eliminated. And if by chance those, there are other mitochondria with proper functioning genes, um, and those are the ones that are left to divide and grow and meet the energetic demands of the cells. Uh, over time, we could end up in a situation where we actually have better mitochondria than what our mothers gave us. Um, but having said that, uh, it is not, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a common occurrence. But like I said, it has been reported in scientific literature. Okay. So a little bit before you talked about the more high energy demanding cells in our body have more mitochondria. So obviously one of the hardest working areas of our body is our heart. So I'm going to assume that there is a huge connection between the mitochondria health and the health of our cardiovascular system. Is that true? Absolutely. And that's, you know, this is where a lot of my my previous research kind of fell uh, with respect to CoQ10 because, of course, you know, CoQ10 
is often seen as a heart healthy nutrient and a lot of people that are concerned with cardiovascular health will be taking uh, coenzyme Q10 supplements. Um, but the reason CoQ10 is so beneficial to the cardiovascular system is that it's uh, because of its role in the energy making process. So when I talked about that electron transport chain, which is a series of uh, proteins that pass electrons from one to the next, well, one of those co components is actually coenzyme Q10. So one of the things that we see is that if you don't have enough coenzyme Q10, you're not able to produce the energy to meet the demands of the cardiovascular system. Um, but by taking CoQ10 supplements, you ramp up the energy production and, and everything starts to work better from heart contraction to also the, the relaxation of the blood vessels. So one of the reasons why CoQ10 has also been linked uh, to um, you know, better blood pressure uh, values and things like that. And maybe we should make the connection because you brought it up before between statins and CoQ10, directly then related to heart health and mitochondria. So it is a circle. It is, yes. And so this is where I think, um, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a bit of uh, this, this illogical reasoning, I think, that happens with the use of statins because uh, statins, well, they do lower cholesterol and how they, they lower cholesterol is it, it inhibits an enzyme that's responsible for producing the bulk of cholesterol that's found within the body. The thing is, is that that same enzyme is also responsible for producing coenzyme Q10. So of course, you know, you can take stands and you'll see a reduction in your cholesterol levels, but what you're essentially doing is you're inducing CoQ10 deficiency in the body. And that is incredibly important for cardiovascular health. So, you know, you're, you're reducing one particular uh, potential risk factor uh, of cardiovascular disease, but you're dramatically increasing the, uh, another risk factor of cardiovascular disease, which is low CoQ10 and uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. So my, in, in my opinion, you know, statins shouldn't really be used in cardiovascular health. There are different ways to lower cholesterol. And you know what? It, a lot of the, the newer research is showing that cholesterol is actually not even a bad thing. So uh, it's, it, it can be, it's a risk factor, but it's not a cause of cardiovascular disease. So you really need to look at the overall picture to understand mm -hmm. what drugs might be best for you. Okay. Now we talked about, uh, well, the title of your book actually incorporates aging. So, you know, as we get older, we talk about, you know, brain function, neuron function, you know, basically our cognitive health. So I think this is going to have to be the last point we talk about as far as disease. How does mitochondria relate to, to aging and, and these broader concepts? Yeah, so um, if you look at the current theories of aging, the mitochondrial theory of aging is at this point considered the most accurate and, and fail-proof theory of aging. Um, it overcomes a lot of the, the gaps in logic and the loopholes that plagued previous theories of aging, things like the free radical theory of aging or the wear and tear theory of aging. You know, they, they were able to explain the aging process to a certain degree, but there was always holes that couldn't be answered. And this is where the, the mitochondria theory of aging has really excelled. And uh, it, it's been challenged and actually has uh, every challenge uh, has only made that theory stronger. So it really, at this point, seems like it's, the mitochondria are considered the biological clock. And really what that means is that as as we age, uh, we start to see uh, different defects in the mitochondrial DNA. Uh, and, and as those kind of get propagated as our cells divide and, and we accumulate them as, uh, through the course of our life, the function of mitochondria decreases. And when we have defective mitochondria that are no longer able to supply the energy that our cells need, well then our cells shift from more of a, a growth and health um, perspective to uh, damage control and just maintaining you know, uh, the bare minimum. And that's where a, the, uh, the aging process really starts. And to link the pieces together, very simply, staying active and eating a proper diet are so important for mitochondrial health, heart health, and, and definitely linked to aging and stuff we can take a hold of and take care of ourselves. You know, we're not talking about ethereal things that are going to be, you know, doctor-led in our, in our cures. These are things that we can, you know, Dr. Lee has told us, get out, exercise, and eat properly, and this is a huge piece of our mitochondrial health. So, there's one very easy, easy access to, you know, slowing down the aging process. So, That's I mean, right. I think it's a, it's a great connection that you've made here. And you've taken this 
heady topic of mitochondria and, and you know, brought it to the forefront and, and made it talkable by people. Yeah, and that's what I, I what was my intention. And I think, you know, just going back to what you were saying, I think, you know, we've all been told the importance of exercise and eating a healthy diet and things like that. And we've, you know, we, we know that doing those things will result in a healthier life. But I think what was missing for a lot of people and, and um, this is what helps motivate us or helps us understand and get us off our bus to, to do that physical activity is that the reason why, you know, why does exercise uh, result in a healthier life? Why does eating healthy and reducing uh, excessive calorie intake result in a healthier life? And so I, I think the the connection that was missing for a lot of people was the, the why and understanding how the mitochondria fits into this, this picture is exactly the, the reason that, um, that these two different things are connected and hopefully um, influences people to, to get moving and, and watch your calorie intake. Well, congratulations on this book. I mean, it's brought, as I said, it's brought in a sort of a, a, a topic that not many people would even know about to the forefront. And it's, it's a very readable book, gives you great insight, and it really helps you to understand the value of the mitochondria, all the things that you can do. So do take, do take a read. It's fascinating. I don't think there's a better book out there on mitochondria. So congratulations. It's, it's awesome. Thank you. And the title Thank of your you. book is Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, the Key to Understanding Disease, Chronic Illness, Aging, and Life Itself. I'm assuming we can find this on Amazon, all the, all the sites that uh, we get all our other books from. Correct. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lee. It's been really, really great. I've learned a lot. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.